Hey folks, welcome to this week's podcast. Michael Shelley here. I've got three guests today trying to do something a little bit different, talking about three bands I love, uh, three authors, and three books written in completely different styles, and three guys with completely different styles as well. So, something interesting. These are all very short, uh, and hopefully you'll find something interesting. And if you want more information about all this stuff, uh, look at the books, buy the books, take them out of the library, uh, or go to the website, go to wfmu.org slash Michael, find the playlist for this program, and there's links to all of these guys' websites uh, for more information about what other projects they're doing in these books uh, in particular. Uh, first, we have Tom Smucker talking about why the Beach Boys matter. After that, Ian Rustin about the Rolling Stones in concert. And finally, Harvey Kubernick and his book called The Story of the Band. Uh, enjoy all three of these. I guess I'll talk to you soon. That's it. All right, there are the Beach Boys, and as I promised, the first of three uh, guest authors today, Tom Smucker. He is a longtime music writer, written for Cream and Rolling Stone and Village Voice and uh, a bunch of stuff, uh, and you've got sort of a, a blog and a website over at TomSmucker.org. Good morning, Tom. How are you? I'm doing good, thanks. Thanks for calling. The book is called Why the Beach Boys Matter from the University of Texas Press, and it's the first of a series. There's, a, I've gotten two of them so far. They're nice kind of small little books, and I wouldn't say that they're short, but they're not long. And I asked the publicity guy over there what the, the purpose of the series is, why uh, – the other one is – the number two is Why the Ramones Matter. And uh, he sent over this statement, and I'm completely paraphrasing now, but it – uh, the, the books are supposed to talk about the importance of the band and examine their musical, cultural, and personal impact of, of the band. Uh, and that's kind of what this book does. It, to me, it reads like a almost like a bunch of magazine articles about the Beach Boys. Is, is that sort of right? Yeah, I think, yeah, I agree with that. And, and uh, you know, I am not a biographer. I did not interview the Beach Boys for this. I was trying to write as a as a fan and the person who's thought a lot about them and read about them and listened to them and gone to their concerts. And so I was just trying to hit a bunch of different points about what, why I thought uh, they were important. And I agree with you. It's like a, a bunch of different magazine articles and hopefully it all adds up uh, in the reader's mind as, as giving my case for why they're important and trying to add my part as a fan because they're important to me, you know, and for somebody else, maybe something else is important. Maybe they kind of like the Beach Boys. Maybe they don't like the Beach Boys at all. But, you know, I think that's uh, one of the great things about listening to pop music. You can have something you identify with closely. You want to share it with other people. But, you know, in the next room, there's people listening to something different. Yeah, certainly on FMU, that, that's for sure. Yes, I agree with that. Yes, uh -huh, for sure. <laughs> One of the things I can't remember, but somewhere in the book I read, you're sort of talking, I think, about different books and about all the, throughout time, the cultural interpretation published about the Beach Boys changes, and I, you refer to something as another way to try to make sense of the Beach Boys, which I thought was real smart, because like you said, it is a personal interpretation to everyone at a certain point. So what yeah. did you, did you learn something going through this and going through their career, and you sort of write about their cultural impact, and you write about the music and the personalities and what they all meant to you? What did you learn sort of having to go through the process of putting it all together? Uh, one thing I learned that was really interesting to me is how at, at a certain point when they'd gone out of kind of out of fashion, 
there was a bunch of fans, really, uh, and some of them became newsletter writers or fan club presidents and eventually journalists. The, the two I mention in the book the most are David Leaf and uh, Dominic Priori. Uh, but there's a whole bunch of people, and of course, many of them are in L.A., and they kind of pull this story together themselves at a point where the Beach Boys are kind of not in the in the in the mix in in the United States anyway and and that part is really interesting to me how in pop music the the fans themselves can become a a force that says no this music is really good here's here's one way to listen to it here's what's really going on so all of that I think um, when I when I stepped back and look at looked at this, that that stepped out to me as wow, that that's kind of interesting. That that's uh, one of the uh, Beach Boys stories. In the book, you sort of talk about other writings about the band, as I mentioned earlier. What do you think is the most wrong-headed idea about the band that's that's <laughs> that you've read? <laughs> well, <laughs> I. <laughs> Probably the most wrongheaded is they have no significance, and that's that's come and gone. But but I I do want to work in here that I that I appreciate. You know, I am a, a, a devoted fan of Brian Wilson. I do not know any of these people personally. I don't know what goes on behind the scenes other than what I've read. But I support your uh, noble goal of n- not making. Mike Love, a demonic figure that's, you know, only ruining things. You know, I think if you listen to all of their music and follow their career, there's a lot of moments there where Mike does some pretty important stuff, particularly his early lyrics and every once in a while in the later songs. And for those of us that have seen them over the years, there were some years there where Mike was really uh, the stage presence. So I I think that storyline that um and and again i don't know these people and who was not nice to who you know i'm not i'm not going to deny any of that but but i think that storyline that it's just brian wilson and the rest of the band are are kind of accidental uh, participants I, I don't agree with that at all no yeah <laughs> well i mean i think if we judge mike solely on his behavior it would be pretty <laughs> negative, but yes, I, just yeah. the only the, the part of the the story that gets me is when people deny his creative contribution to the band. That's yes, that's, ju- that's, that's right. just yes. it's ridiculous, and it's gotten to some sort of strange fever. You mentioned Mike Love's name, and yes. pe- people go nuts. And yes. I'm just strictly yes. talking about his musical, uh, you know, c- contributions to the band. Uh, Tom Smucker is yes. our guest. The book is called "Why the Beach Boys Matter," and it's the first of a whole series of books that you might want to look into. Uh, TomSmucker.org is the website. I think you can order the book off there and take a look at all your work up there. Thanks for joining us, and I know you're a WFMU listener, and I appreciate that, yep. and uh, and uh, good luck with the book. Thank you, Tom. Okay, thank you very much, Michael. Uh, have a good day.
Uh, joining us on the telephone, our second of three authors, Ian Rustin. The book is called The Rolling Stones in Concert, 1962 to 1982, a show-by-show show history. You may remember that Ian was on the show a few years ago when he co-wrote a similar book called Beach Boys in Concert. And I love that book because by looking at the just the concert history of the band, you get a different avenue into the history of the band, and it was sort of a, just a delightful surprise. Uh, this book is the same, traces the history of this band. I imagine it was just an incredible amount of work. Where did you start? Well, I started, uh, it's, it was a little different from the Beach Boys book because um, you can find lists of all the Rolling Stone shows, you know, so that was a little easier. With the Beach Boys, I had to actually like do detective work to find out where they played, you know. But uh, with the Rolling Stones, I had the list of concerts that turned out to be mostly correct. However, nobody had ever written a book like this that detailed all their shows. So I had to do the same sort of thing I did with the Beach Boys book, go to libraries, pull up reviews in old moldy newspapers or from magazines like the Melody Maker and uh, New Musical Express and read every single book that has come out about the Rolling Stones. Uh, I also went back and listened to all the albums again, including a few that I hadn't actually owned. You know, I went and bought them and I even bought all the DVDs uh, and things that have come out, some of which I had, you know, didn't have uh, just so I could make sure I was telling the story correctly. Uh, there's info in the book about opening acts and set lists and travel itineraries and, and stuff like that. Uh, and it and the book condenses all these reviews and lots of news reporting also. And it's interesting to me to read the reviews of the shows, especially the negative ones. It, it's kind of uh, – you, you forget about that this, this band wasn't always just this sort of spectacle. You know, their tours now are sort of more of a spectacle. Uh, back then, especially in the early days, they were taken seriously and each show was reviewed like a cultural uh, event. And one of the things I pr really appreciate about the book was the very, very – early history, because at a certain point, their whole career, every second of it is documented. Uh, but the early stuff, there was a real window into how the band formed. Even before the five guys, the classic lineup was formed, the, the book starts just before that, right? Right. Well, you know, yeah. So I started out, you know, uh, I did a similar thing with the Beach Boy book. We have sort of introductory chapters introducing each year, and then we go into show by show for each year. Were you able to determine how touring has changed you know just the mechanics of it yeah well that's what i find that really interesting you know that like um uh, i even have a, an interview clip where ian stewart is talking about that he's saying about he he talks in the interview he's sort of complaining he's a bit of a curmudgeon i think and he he was complaining that in the old days it was just them and maybe one of their manager uh, the original manager was andrew Oldham, and maybe a road manager or a roadie, you know, and that was about it. So they traveled with like just like seven people on the road in the 60s, you know. And then he was complaining that by, you know, the early 70s, all of a sudden they were traveling with like two airplanes full of people, you know, as many as like <laughs> 60 or 70 people. And he wasn't even sure what all their jobs were. He just knew that it was ridiculous, you know, that this sort of excess, it became, it became this sort of circus traveling around from town to town, you know, taking up whole hotel hotels, you know, all the rooms in a hotel and, you know, and um, things like that. It, it got pretty crazy, but it started out with just, you know, the band in, in a car with maybe their manager and a, and a road man, you know, a roadie and a road manager. And that was about it. In doing the research and putting the book together, were there surprises or what was the biggest surprise thing you didn't know or thing you were surprised to learn? I think in a way writing a book, you know, like that, you, 
I learned more about the band, you know, and I guess I came to appreciate more um, periods of the band that I hadn't appreciated before. I think that when I, when I was started writing, you know, I've always loved the 1960s classic Rolling Stones and pretty much all those records. And like a lot of people, uh, have, you know, easy thing to say is that, you know, around after Exxon Main Street, which is their 1972 double album, uh, a lot of people say they started to kind of um, be less consistent and, and they think that a lot of their 70s albums weren't, weren't as good. But I came to have a lot of respect for a couple of those albums that I had sort of, you know, disregarded before, especially I think Goat's Head Soup 1973 is a really good album, actually. And I like also It's Only Rock and Roll from 1974. Um, and, and, you know, then I, and I realized that even, you know, up through, uh, you know, Tattoo You in 1981, I think most of the albums are, are pretty good. You know, uh, I think after that, it's a bit more hit or miss for me, but, um, also just to see the, the, the number shows, and I listened to a lot of tapes and that the, the quality of the stones really was maintained, you know, even today, I think, you know, they put on a great show. I don't know how many bands really you can say are as consistent about putting out a decent product live as them. It's so interesting you say that because to me, I've never seen them live uh, and you'd have to give me a money back guarantee to go because the last few times I've seen film of them, they've been terrible. And I mean, on any level, terrible, just, just like, uh, uh, just not together. And maybe I've just, seen a few bad clips, but it seems to me the last few years, the last tours, they're just a disaster. They're almost a parody of themselves. Uh, but obviously you've seen a lot more of of their lineup than I have. Yeah, well, I mean, I say in the book, and, uh, and I'll stick by it, that I think, um, I think Ron Wood is a talented musician and guitarist, but I do think that once he joined, I feel like the band lost a certain... Um, it became a, it, it got it had, it started to develop a more like kind of just rock band sound maybe you know like a more shambolic thing like the faces or something and stopped having the kind of um almost okay you know the ability to do a, a whole bunch of different genres that they'd been able to do with Brian Jones the original guitarist and then with Mick Taylor who replaced him a certain a delicacy of was lost you know and, uh, and and so yeah, if if the Stones are having a bad night, they can be very sloppy. You know, it's like that this lineup. You know, and and you know, but I still think that when 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 the mood is right, um, they occasionally are, are able to to do a great show. You know, I mean, I think also though I should point out, obviously, it would be incredible to have seen them back in the day like in smaller clubs or small theaters you know and i think the fact that they for good or bad became a stadium band is just a drawback you know i mean there's no doubt that seeing a band in chase stadium is not the same as seeing a band play you know in a in a in like let's say the new york's town hall or something that would be a way better place to see the rolling stones well, one of the things the book chronicles is they would often do warm-up shows in these tiny little clubs that, you know, in the days leading up to a huge tour. And you can imagine, right. I think they still do that. And it's, it is a shame that they are forced or that they've chosen because they like money to play in these giant places where it's sort of hard to put over their songs, I think. It just doesn't translate to 50,000 people. I, it just sounds horrible. <laughs> To me. Yeah, I know, I know, I know what you mean. It, it's true. I mean, you know, that's the thing. That's why, like, 
to see those kind of gigs would be is is awesome if you if you're able to see them. I never had that opportunity, but I, I know I, people that have. I mean, and they say you know that's like so different to see them in like you know a, a thousand seat hall instead of a fifty thousand seat stadium is like probably like night and day. I think and I think Keith Richards <laughs> even has admitted that. I saw an interview where he was saying this band really is a club band. This is where they're at their best. But yeah, you know, I, but the truth absolutely yeah. But yeah, but I mean, but he did say something which is true. He said, if we came into New York and we tried to play a, a you know thousand seat club, there'd be so much demand that we'd have to play there like thirty days. So it makes more sense to play a stadium where you can play two shows, you know, and 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 accommodate all the demand. It's just, I think, quality suffers. They could play the Beacon Theater for a week or so or, you know, do what Bruce Springsteen, I don't know. There's a million ways to do it. They're going strictly for the money and don't believe anything Keith Richards says about, you know, <laughs> he's, he's a liar. Uh, Ian Rustin is our guest. The book is called The Rolling Stones in Concert, 1962 to 1982, a show by Show Histories published by McFarland. Thanks for joining us and giving us some in- interesting insight into this band who's on tour again. Yes. Thank you so much, Michael. Okay, folks, there is the band, and finally, we have number three of three authors on the program today. Harvey Kubernick is, boy, you've done a lot. I was looking at your website, cavehollywood.com. You are certainly a prolific music journalist, uh, sometimes musician, A&R executive, but for, I think there's about 14 books and a million articles up on your website, and the new book is called The Story of the Band, From Big Pink to the Last Waltz, which chronicles the, the career of the band from 1966 to 1976, and one one of the things that struck me when I was reading the book, and by the way, it's an amazing—it's just a gorgeous, beautiful book—is uh, lucky for you that the band only existed for such a short time because it lets you completely crystallize their whole career in one book. Thank you for the uh, praise. Good morning to everybody. Let's just call this a period piece book because I was really focusing on that ten-year period, sixty-six to nineteen seventy-six and wasn't psychically, or shall we say, contractually obligated to really give us the wrap-up of the last 40 years, the various reissues, re-releases, truncated digital music, solo albums, and you know what I'm talking about. So on this one, it was very defined, and and so um, we're not going into the usual world of creating maybe a more of a balance where we have to kind of deal with the last 30 and 40 years and even posthumous um, deaths and, and rebirths and, you know, career and new labels. And so I think you get the band and the recorded catalog and the trajectory of their life, you know, as Levon and the Hawks paired with Bob Dylan and then this kind of 1968 to 1976 period where they are the band yeah it's very fascinating and you know i i'm a i'm a fan of them and i thought i knew a lot but there's so much in here and the way it's laid out the um the format of the book is really unusual it's almost sort of like a scrapbook there's just tons and tons of short interviews and little pieces and uh, reproductions of visual things that sort of help tell the story and, like you said, move it along in this sort of chronological way. I didn't realize that The Last Waltz is 40 years old and their debut album is 50 years old, but of course they started much earlier than that, and that's one of my favorite parts of the book is the the stuff about the very, very early days when they're working with Ronnie Hawkins. Just so interesting. 
One of the reasons I do these books, we're at number 15, is I, I really can look at you, I mean, you're 3,000 miles away, or I could talk to you and say, I'm in it for the challenge and the risk. And before I embarked on this band book, I would say there were a half a dozen people I know, friends, and then some fans that would come up to me, what are you working on? What's your next book? You know, I have this, we'll call it a demographic. And I would say the band, and everybody would say, well, haven't there been a couple of books on the band already? What can you... What are you going to do? And I said, you're talking to Harvey Kubernick. You mean there's two books out or three maybe? One's 25 years old. None of them have had 100 color photos or been this format, which I know you cherish. You mean you think the story's already been written? Are you Meshugana? <laughs> and you've already said it to me, and it's the best compliment I can receive, which I'm getting daily. I thought I knew a whole lot about the band already. You are a musician. You're a record buff. You're a geek. You're a collector. You're a radio guy. All your friends, you thought you had it wired, didn't you? And all of a sudden, you've learned 50 to 100 new pieces of information, not counting the 150 visuals, and it's not sorted information or about the dis dysfunctional musicians. It's recording it's technical, it's anecdotal, it's regional. And when you really devour the book, somebody like you must say, I didn't know all this West Coast stuff was going on, on top of the migration and the expedition through the world of Ronnie Hawkins. Like you mentioned, there's just tons of unpublished interviews and little short pieces of people that worked with the band that really helped tell the story uh, in first-person witness testimony, which I think makes the makes it really compelling to read the story. Was there stuff that you yourself, uh, what's the most interesting thing you yourself didn't know before you started this project? There are a couple, but the one thing, I don't want to say it blew my mind, but it got pretty close to it. I had always heard for many decades that a musician named John Ware, who worked with uh, Chris Darrow of the Kaleidoscope and, and Linda Ronstadt, and I think he was with Emmy Lou Harris as a drummer for, I think, 13 years. And I, I mean, I know him as a musician. Um, I, I always knew he was kind of a fan um, of Ronnie Hawkins and the band, and that he actually had seen Ronnie Hawkins with the Hawks with his good pal, Jesse Ed Davis. So Chris Darrow gave me his email and I said, I'm doing a book on a band, on the band. Did you ever run into any of the guys in the band out on the West Coast? And I was just amazed and I gave it a sidebar in the book because I picked the sidebars and the pull quotes and everything. That he told me that he spent three months, at least three months, in a group in Venice, California, in Lena Ronstadt's house, playing with LeVon Helm in a group where he actually got switched over to bass. And LeVon was one of his heroes, who was his drum teacher in Arkansas. Those, that's the connective tissue that I really like to find. But the, as I glanced at a couple of the early band books and read some articles, it always seemed like LeVon Helm quit you know, quit the band or quit the Hawks before this 1966 uh, global tour with Bob Dylan 
and then he was summoned off an oil rig in Arkansas or something to join the band in maybe late 68 for them, sometime in late 67 maybe, or early 68, to play with the Hawks and Bob Dylan at this famous uh, Woody Guthrie uh, tribute concert at Carnegie Hall. Who knew that he did three months out here in a band with 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 these guys and 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 John had such details of repertoire and specifics that it was just nice to know that he and somebody yesterday emailed me and said I read that thing about John Ware and 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 Levon Helm and you're almost immediately prepared to put your dukes up to kind of fight for this one. And he said, did you know Levon played for a week with Jimmy Garstein and a bunch of people and all these Okies out here with Leon Russell? He was in a kind of a group out here before he did the John Ware thing. These are the kind of things that I like. There's just great history in this book, great pictures to sort of put it all together. And like you said, little pull quotes and stuff. Uh, it's fascinating. Uh, Harvey Kubernick, the book, once again, is called The Story of the Band for Big Pink to Last Waltz. Folks can make a good... Um, a good uh, coffee table book, or because uh, it, it's huge, it's like a. I want people to and understand. It's re- and it is reasonably priced. <laughs> it's too. reasonably priced. Uh, go to cavehollywood.com for information uh, on this book and on everything raconteur Harvey Kubernick is up to. And it sounds like you're up to a lot. Well, close to six feet, almost five eleven. Oh, up to a lot. <laughs> yeah. Uh, um, no, we're working away on, um, or I've got, uh, I write a lot for cavehollywood.com and I also do the cover stories for the last 10 years of record collector news. And, um, there's a new story out I've done, uh, I've done a cover story that comes out, uh, the December, January issue is the cover story in the Beatles white album. And I've been writing about Howlin' Wolf and I've been writing, I, I, I write, I let it go into the universe or the looniverse, as Andrew Lou Goldham calls it, and it seems to land somewhere. But uh, really enjoyed your enthusiasm to this book, and I know that you are a historian, but I'm pretty sure somebody like you was pretty amazed uh, at the detail into Gold Star and knowing that part of Big Pink or the sessions were done at Gold Star, let alone the mixing and recording on the Gold on Capitol Records eight track studios in Hollywood. So it wasn't all this mythic uh, Woodstock, you know, forest world, which I, I totally respect. But L.A. and Hollywood had a lot to do with these records being recorded. Yeah, I think that's part of part of the interesting history. Uh, the story of the band from Big Pink to the Last Waltz is the book. For more information, folks, go visit CaveHollywood.com. Harvey, thanks for taking a minute of your morning to speak with us, and uh, good work on the book. Thank you very much. Anytime.